Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. Hello and welcome to Third Waves. Third is an intersectional publication celebrating culture, heritage and diversity. And on Third Waves, we will do the same. I am Rona, stylist, creative director and founder of Third. I'm Daniela. I'm a writer, musician and producer at Third. And I'm Tribe, DJ, radio host and music editor at Third. Happy New Year and welcome back to Third Waves. It's January and many people will be doing dry January or at least some kind of detox after the holiday period. So it felt like a perfect time to talk about a topic that has really taken our interest in this moment, the topic of alcohol. From making bars and events more inclusive by having a broader non-alcoholic menu, to less than 1% craft beers, to the multitude of damaging effects of alcohol and how the threshold of qualifying as an alcoholic is actually much lower than people would like to think. Thank you, James, for being here with us sure. today. Um, just to start off, could you tell us a bit about your backstory, mm. um, the work you do and how you got into it? Sure. Um, so I first got into the kind of alcohol agenda through uh, working through a local authority uh, in about 2004, which I, I graduated from university and went and kind of blagged myself into this job that was about reducing alcohol problems at a kind of local authority level. Um but I think the kind of reason I was partly able to uh, sort of talk my way into that was that I went through a experience at university of going there, being a pretty heavy drinker and taking that to the to the level that I was really able to in the sense of that kind of environment really allowed for binge drinking. And um, certainly at that time, kind of 2000, that's what we call kind of peak alcohol in terms of national consumption had really hit a high point after rising for, for many decades and that was a kind of period of uh, binge culture and alka pops and so on. Uh, and I really embraced that, but it did come with consequences. So for my health, and I did a lot of stupid things. Um, I won't go into too many details. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, so I went through this period of kind of trying to figure out why was I kind of self-destructing in, in this way. Um, and in my second year, I kind of stopped drinking. And that really radically changed my experience of being at university and a lot of uh, friends or people I thought of as friends kind of just didn't want to know me anymore mm. because I they saw me as being this kind of first and last at the bar person to suddenly someone going well I'm not drinking at all um, so I got really interested in it from from that side and then ended up um, working in uh, the kind of field in different forms for, for kind of since then really so interesting um, and so you are a PhD student at the moment. That's um, right, yeah. Love to hear a bit about what your sure. research focus is. Yeah, so um, so one of the things that I did uh, quite a lot of um, kind of working subsequently was around training healthcare professionals uh, to deliver what's generally known as brief interventions. So these are like a conversation where a healthcare professional might identify with someone, identify someone who's drinking a bit too much, uh, and they would then identify that and kind of point out that this is a bit of a risky level of consumption. Maybe you might want to think about cutting down and how would you go about doing that? And there's good evidence that that, that kind of short approach can have quite lasting benefits in terms of behaviour change if it's kind of done in the right way, you mm. know, not a judgmental <laughs> yeah. telling off. You've got a problem. Way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that can be counterproductive. Yeah, so yeah. a lot of the skills... Um, 
that I was kind of teaching or training these healthcare practitioners isn't was was trying not to be too directive or judgy or anything like that whereas just trying to get someone to think about actually um you know there's pros and cons to drinking as we'll, we'll probably discuss later so that can work but what i really found interesting was that uh throughout um kind of training thousands of professionals the thing that that really seemed to come up time and time again was that people were very preoccupied with the idea of an alcoholic. Mm. So I'd often say, well, you know, there's lots of people that are going to work, they've got jobs, they're functioning, um, but their drinking is harming their health or putting their health at risk or their well-being or their functioning. Those are the really uh, golden opportunities just to have a quick conversation and maybe nip something in the bud or you know, get someone to kind of bring some health benefits to their life um, just by making some small changes. Um, but it's quite hard to sell that because people would just keep going back. But I've, I've got this uh, kind of patient or this person that comes in every week and he's, you know, severely dependent, he's an alcoholic, what do I do about him? And, you know, that's a really important question and a really important group of people that we don't want to forget about. But at the same time, for every one person with severe alcohol dependency, there's, you know, often, you know, depends how you cut the cake, but dozens of people with mm. risky levels of alcohol use. So from a public health point of view, we really want to do better at prevention and early mm. intervention. But it's very hard to get people to kind of take the focus off and see it a bit more broad brush approach. So, um, yeah, to get to the point of the question, <laughs> my PhD was really about how do people's uh, beliefs about what alcohol problems are affect the way that we kind of think about and talk about and see see these things. So particularly this idea of alcoholism as a kind of disease that you have to hit rock bottom and recover from, which kind of works for a lot of people. But um, yeah, the, in reality, it kind of creates a false divide between how many people see it as two two groups of yeah. drinkers, alcoholics and everyone else. Mm. And this kind of false separation that's the kind of dominant model for alcohol problems in many people's minds, um, for good reason, because that's the kind of narrative that's pervaded yeah. for a long time. How can we kind of break that down a bit and what are the kind of pros and cons of doing that? Yeah, I really love the fact that you give this really balanced approach to dealing with alcohol problems or mm. alcohol misuse. Um, and I notice one of the words that you talk about a lot is harm. And I think mm. sometimes you don't actually understand what harm, what the harm is. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. So it'd be great to get you to unpack like the different levels sure. from like, you know, socially, I imagine there's harm from alcohol mm. as well as physically. Absolutely. And yeah, there's a number of challenges around that. I mean, uh, what what we talk a lot about in public health as well as risk. So, um, you, you know, say, say drinking alcohol, um, unfortunately, at any level carries uh, a risk of cancer, or at least seven types of cancer. Um, so particularly things that alcohol con comes into contact with, you know, throat and mouth and, and liver. Um, for women, breast cancer is, is, is significantly raised the more you drink. The, the kind of difficulty around it is that if you're drinking at very low levels of alcohol, that increased risk of cancer is very, very small. That you know, um, that that only it would only result in one increased case of cancer per. I can't remember the exact stat, but it's something like a few thousand people by drinking at low levels of alcohol. But obviously, the more you go up, the more. That, that risk goes and that's true for almost every kind of alcohol related harm so I think the difficulty is often that people will think or feel that if they can't if they're not experiencing or aware of any actual physical embodied effects of negative effects of alcohol yet then you know why you don't need to worry about it um, but then things like liver liver disease or liver problems are really interesting because uh, the liver's obviously the, the organ that takes the most punishment or has to work the hardest to kind of deal with alcohol. Um, but it's not until kind of end stage uh, liver damage to signs become really noticeable. So you could have early or mid stage liver scarring or liver cirrhosis and not be aware of it at all. You wouldn't have any pain or anything. Um, so unless you've got a kind of really quite sophisticated liver fibre scan, you wouldn't know. Um, so... Yeah, that's the challenge that a lot of people have harms or negative effects, which could be much less life threatening, but like poor sleep's probably one of the biggest underrecognized things. So alcohol kind of doesn't mm. allow people to get deep restorative sleep. Uh, so a lot of these things are not noticed or not connected to drinking. Uh, and that kind of allows people to, again, kind of separate 
oh, you know, well, I like, I'm happy with how much I'm drinking and there's no costs to that, when being a bit more scientific about it, there probably are some costs, even if it's just increased risk. Mm. And another side to the harm uh, topic is, I feel like when we when when I think about uh, alcohol harm, I'm thinking about my body, yeah. I'm thinking about, you know, physical yeah. things or perhaps you know i have an argument so that was kind of the social aspect that that uh, rona was kind of starting to bring up but also i think uh the effects on people's uh work mm. um i think that's something that people don't talk about as much that how how many people perhaps drink while they're working mm. and or like the effect of a bad hangover on yeah. the not not only efficiencies but you know people working with big machines or, yeah, you know, have other people's lives in their hands, essentially. Um, I, I wondered if you could maybe talk on sure. that. Sure. Um, I mean, there, there's been a cause to do some kind of more updated economic modelling of the, the kind of costs of al alcohol on the nation. But um, in around 2004, there was an economic impact assessment done by the government and it put the cost of alcohol on productivity at around seven billion. And that's kind of twice what the, t the estimate at the time was on the NHS. So about three and a half billion costs to the NHS each year from from uh, from alcohol. Uh, but yeah, twice that in terms of just so many lost working days. Wow. Or a lot mm -hmm. of people talk about presenteeism as well, you know, like being at work, but being hung over and not really <laughs> not doing anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, yeah, lost working days through long-term illness and health problems, hangovers, mm. sick days, uh, all, all the all that kind of stuff. It, you know, from an economic point of view, it's definitely big. Yeah, um, going back to your your personal story a little, I I found it interesting. Um, you were talking about your sobriety going from um, drinking uh, a lot to not drinking yeah. at all, and and it's an interesting topic. Um, regarding moderation versus teetotalism yeah, absolutely well i mean for the record i'm not actually i don't identify well i'm not a, a, a kind of abstinent anymore so um yeah i love i'm fascinated by the kind of um the way again which people kind of have these ideas which often tied to the kind of disease model or alcoholism model about abstinence being the route to recovery or even recovery as a word because yeah my personal experience was that i didn't drink for about eight years after um, <clears throat> after that kind of experience. But but during that period, you know, I kind of changed quite a lot. Um, you know, I was a very different place eight years later and I was pretty convinced that, you know, I could actually drink moderately if that was something I wanted to do. And I contemplated it quite a lot and I was actually quite worried about some of those kind of, um, you know, maybe stereotypes or ideas about, oh, it's a slippery slope and, you know, um, you know, there's an old Alcoholics Anonymous saying, like, one drink, one drunk. The idea of controlled drinking or uh, moderation or however you want to call it has been, has a really fascinating and controversial history. Um, and in large part of that, of that is because of the dominance of the kind of AA model, which obviously says that if you're an alcoholic, you can never drink again. Um, and that's certainly true that for a lot of dependent drinkers abstinence is absolutely your best bet that's the safest option and a lot of people um and certainly this was my experience kind of before i stopped drinking i did try and moderate and fail is that with you know with abstinence you know exactly where the line is it's yeah. zero yeah whereas when you start trying to control it it's like whoa how much is this <laughs> and so on yeah um but um but yeah i've been drinking now for all for for longer actually than I was not drinking in moderation. I think the really crucial thing was that um, there's a number of predictors around likelihood of succeeding at, at moderation or controlled drinking, whatever you want to call it. Um, one is having a period of abstinence is really good for you in terms of, I mean, it's, it's very complicated, but maybe there is a bit of the kind of brain learning to reset itself a bit to sort of speak metaphorically. Um, but mainly for me, it was about kind of figuring out what was going on in my life. Why were, why did I have all this kind of stuff in my head that really made me want to drink quite destructively mm. and kind of dealing with some of that stuff? I just felt like it was in a totally different place and I, I just no longer have that desire to kind of self-destruct and drink heavily that I used to have. So now I'll have a social drink or two or a glass of wine with a meal and I'm very conscious that that's the place that alcohol plays in my life. And that if I'm in a stressful period or feeling, you know, very tense or whatever, I'm not really going to drink because I don't want it to become that thing that it was before, where it was a kind of 
crux or mechanism for letting go of negative stuff. So it does work for some people, albeit that people that have had severe alcohol dependency, um, yeah, that's less likely to be an appropriate or, or possible kind of outcome. Yeah, I think, James, what you're almost exploring is the, the whole concept of addiction, isn't it? Absolutely. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I think when it comes to alcohol, obviously, maybe you can talk to us about elements of alcohol that are actually mm. biologically quite addictive. But I think a lot sometimes the things we, we choose to do um, when they can connect to our actual lives, um, that's another reason for the addiction. Absolutely. I mean, there's, again, I, I love these debates about what addiction is and... You know, still they're very quite fiercely fought. You know, you've got kind of very medical or biological perspectives and you've got very psychological perspectives and very social perspectives or social cultural. Um, a lot of people kind of say, well, it's a biopsychosocial thing, in which, in which means basically that there is a kind of genetic biological element, there is a social element and there is a psychological element um, and they all kind of combine individually for different people in different ways. Um, so yeah, there is, there are certain genes that have been identified to make people more, uh, at risk of developing addictions or having certain problems. Um, but the biggest predictor really is actually, uh, adverse childhood experiences. So, uh, people that have had traumatic or more or higher degrees or higher numbers of traumatic experiences throughout their childhood. That is very predictive of, uh, later life mental health and drug or alcohol problems um, as well as early onset drinking so the adolescent brain is kind of primed for learning it's sort of kind of super plastic in its childhood and adolescent phases so if you expose it to substances uh, or addictive behaviors during that period that kind of almost sets it up to be more kind of primed for, for those addictive behaviors in later life um, but, you know, kind of as a psycholo psychologist from my PhD point of view, you know, I certainly think that the, the kind of roles of our thoughts and our feelings and our behaviours are really important. Um, and most people say, you know, they like drinking, it makes them feel better. Mm. And that's absolutely right. It does, you know, for most people kind of release dopamine in a way that's positive or pleasurable. You know, it's a social lubricant. Um, but then at the same time, repeating those behaviours does cause... Um, kind of pathways in the brain to become reinforced so that it does become a kind of more subconscious go-to mechanism yeah um, so you know there's there's a guy called Mark Lewis who's a neuroscientist and and kind of identifies as a former heroin addict who has written some brilliant stuff but he's kind of says that um, you know it's this kind of a form of dysfunctional learning in the sense that um, you know if you learn to drive a car at the start you're very conscious of what you have to do um, but over time you just learn to do it subconsciously so that you can kind of drive without even thinking about it and addiction's a bit like that in the sense that the more you do it the more it just becomes a kind of subconscious thing that you kind of fall into doing without kind of uh, thinking about it consciously and then obviously people have maybe a kind of moment or an awakening where they think oh god you know this is an addiction and I actually need to do something about it and they might begin the process of trying to kind of unlearn or yeah kind of forge new pathways in the brain that kind of kind of hopefully kind of replace that kind of automatic addictive process but of course all that happens in a very complex environment of your social networks your your kind of life and where you're at with that and uh, all those other kind of almost infinite multiple factors mm. I, th I thought what you said there I guess is kind of where this uh, metaphor of the slippery slope comes from mm. um, but in as much as that can be um, an unhelpful metaphor in some cases I, I find the idea of uh, addiction and addictive behavior being on a spectrum very interesting and also the the idea of identifying as somebody who has a problem mm. be also being on a spectrum very very interesting absolutely i think that's that's the the alternative to the kind of dominant brain disease binary model that we kind of want is that you know even if the brain and and genetics and so on play a role which which they certainly do it's still not a kind of you're either 100% addicted and that's because of your genes or nothing. It's certainly not the case. And, and I think this way of a kind of continuum or a spectrum is the kind of, I don't want to say antidote because I don't want to replace that because that model 
does exist and will exist for people who identify with that and it works for but yeah just talking about the kind of broader population so you know I myself I think I probably am a bit addicted to my phone and um, you know I certainly have certain tendencies where I find they're a bit automatic where I think I'd like Mm. to reflect on them a bit more before I just pick up my phone or uh, I don't know you know turn on the telly or whatever Um, so yeah I definitely think again that's a part of a problem of addiction is that it's generally seen as a binary all or nothing thing whereas in fact these kind of concepts should be viewed as or could be viewed as much more fluid I think the same mental health you know Mm -hmm. we've all got mental health we all need to look after it and we all sometimes feel a bit up and a bit down and that's always kind of uh, fluid and kind of dependent on a whole range of things going on in our lives Mm -hmm. so how difficult is it to get the support people need to quit do medical professions have to reform the way they think about alcohol too? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question because, um, I mean, the, the the first thing I'd say about the question, though, is that, of course, the the assumption in, bin, in built in it is kind of tied to this disease model idea that people have a severe problem and have to get help. The really fascinating thing is if you actually look at addiction more broadly, most people actually recover without any formal help and that's what Mm -hmm. we might call kind of natural recovery or self-change um so uh again particularly when you look at people with less severe alcohol problems or addictions that actually they just go through this kind of more self-reliant process of well actually i want to change that a bit and figuring out how they're going to do that but but certainly say if someone does have a severe addiction and physical dependency then you need a kind of medical detox if you're if you're going to go down that route. Otherwise, it can be extremely dangerous because your body can be so dependent on alcohol that suddenly taking it away can cause fits and seizures, mm. which could actually be fatal in the case of, of alcohol. Um, unfortunately, over the last 10 years, really, we've seen um, kind of a lot of cuts to statutory addiction services under austerity, um, you know, roughly kind of 30% cuts to the budget's fa- uh, funding Uh, drug and alcohol services Um, so we've seen the numbers of people getting kind of uh, official help falling uh, quite significantly Um, that said you know uh, you know it's not just about funding I do think that the question's right in the sense that we need to kind of change the overall uh, kind of paradigm that uh, you know that actually most people who do recover it's it's kind of services or support are helping them to do it themselves Mm. Um, so we do want to just encourage a bit more thinking about how we can help people to help themselves as well as them being reliant on a very kind of medical model of kind of treatment um, as as it kind of does exist so so I want those services to 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 exist and be better funded but I also want them to think more broadly about how they can reach people at different stages in the kind of addiction trajectory rather than just kind of tending to wait until people's problems are so severe that they end up saying I've got no choice but to go to this service there is a lot more we can do to help people at an earlier stage yeah and that goes back to that continuum or spectrum thinking Mm. that until we get that thought process more embedded at a kind of broader level then it will probably continue to be the case that people will kind of feel like they need to hit a rock bottom before they go and get Mm. help it's kind of like we need to change the threshold of what we consider extreme or consider alcoholism absolutely yeah um yeah i think so because uh, as i said you know there's degrees of risk there's degrees of harm and there's degrees of addiction um and yet, yeah, for most people, they kind of tend to think, or, or a lot of people, you might hear something like, well, I'm not an alcoholic, so yeah. I don't need to do anything about my drinking. Whereas, you know, just based on the evidence, there's a lot of people that are experiencing risks and harms. But they're very aware of the stigma of, you know, alcohol, having an alcohol problem is highly stigmatised, uh, you know, on some measures more so than mental health problems or even drug addiction. Um, so we've got to do a lot to try and break down the stigma as well so that people, I think a lot of people realise on some level that their drinking is kind of harmful, but mm. to come out and say my drinking's a problem takes quite a kind of strong sense of self and a bit of resilience to be able to take on that stigma that that label mm. comes mm. comes with. Definitely. Um, you were saying briefly, like from your research, that there seemed to have been like a gradual progression that peaked around 2000 in terms of alcohol consumption in the UK. 
Um, did you, from your research, did you see the kind of things that kind of contributed to it or how that we got to that point? Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, from about the 50s and 60s, uh, we can see, uh, you know, like consumption generally is recorded or fairly accurately um, estimated by kind of volume uh, sales of alcohol. So the alcohol receipts, obviously, when they do national surveys, people underestimate what they drink by quite a lot, yeah. which is quite telling <laughs> no themselves, you know, about 40% roughly. But, but those consumption estimates have been quite a reliable measure over time, particularly when you take into account the kind of sales receipts. And yeah, from the 50s and 60s, we saw this kind of gradual increase until it kind of peaked in 2004. Um, but a lot of that was um, increasing kind of disposable income. Mm. Uh, so as well as kind of falling relative price uh, of alcohol. So there's a kind of graph that shows uh, affordability of alcohol uh, as that goes up, consumption goes up. So, uh, you know, on a kind of on a grand level, it's kind of basic economics that, that goods are price sensitive. Uh, and obviously, we've seen tobacco or smoking rates have really come down. And a lot of that is to do with the way that the prices have just been jacked up so much through tax. Um, so price is a really big determinant, but so is availability. So we had this kind of liberalisation of availability, whereby now any supermarket you know, flooded with alcohol, stacks of it everywhere on every end of every aisle and as soon as you go in. Uh, and kind of tied to that, the kind of whole marketing uh, agenda around it. So the alcohol industry obviously spends huge amounts on advertising alcohol and because they know that it does work, um, although they've got some quite clever arguments to say that it's just about, you know, getting people to choose our brand rather than the others and so on. Um, so, yeah, price, availability and advertising or marketing, these are the three things that on a kind of population, national level, really are big determinants in terms of shaping overall consumption. This song is called Viral and it's by Moses Somney. Uh, he's about to release a new album next year and it's going to be a double album. And this particular song explores the idea of um, masculinity and the expectations of gender. And it's accompanied by a really beautiful music video. So I would recommend going to just go and YouTube that right away because he directed it himself as well as produced it as well. Um, and the song as a writer, so it's like all his. So that is Moses Somni, Viral. Hello. Hi. Nice Good to, to meet you. you. Nice to meet you. How are you doing? Both you, Lauren, and James have talked about high-functioning sort of alcohol mm -hmm. addiction um, or dealing with alcoholism, but yet being super high-functioning. And I just wondered if you guys could talk about, like, um, maybe representations around alcoholisms and this whole concept of being an alcoholic via, like, your rock bottom. Um, because I think one of the barriers that stops people from getting help is because they feel they're fine. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. and, sorry, just to is jump in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and you're absolutely spot on with that because there's, you know, a lot of the literature will really say when they interview people who are heavy drinkers who say they kind of don't have a problem, will very often the first justification they will have was, well, I'm still meeting my responsibilities. I'm still going to work. I'm looking after my family. That, that, you know, that is kind of the ultimate get out clause for many people as they see it for justifying their drinking, that they kind of haven't hit a rock bottom or, you know, they're still functioning, even though when they may be drinking huge amounts, that means they're inevitably having negative health consequences or it's very likely that it is affecting their performance or sleep or functioning, even though they're managing to, to kind of function in their own eyes as they'd see it. Yeah, that was that was completely my experience because I, uh, I was saying earlier, like I hit my bottom, like doing a graduate program at Yale, and I was like, well, I'm I'm, st I'm still making every single one of my classes. I'm I'm not failing, and it, it wasn't until getting sober that I was like, oh wow, it doesn't have to be so difficult. Like it doesn't, I don't have to be like literally dying. <laughs> while I'm doing my coursework and you know it's some, something that gets said a lot it's like uh it's 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 progressive like uh if you have a problem with drinking it's progressive like just because you haven't hit 
a rock bottom that qualifies with what you consider an alcoholic doesn't mean that you won't get there. And then, you know, not everyone will have that experience. But for me, that was definitely true. Like my what, what I perceive as being someone I, I, that I would I thought that like I wasn't an alcoholic because I wasn't destitute. I still had my house. I still had like my school. But you know that that was still there for me to lose. Like if I kept going as I was going. Absolutely. And I, and I think you know, kind of from a psychology perspective, the mind is an amazing thing, and we can uh, and you know we can always come up with amazing uh, kind of tricks on ourselves to believe the story that we want to tell. And what what always fascinates me about when I was kind of drinking really heavily and I developed a lot of tolerance so I could drink pretty much a bottle of rum or whatever it was and you know still not actually feel drunk because my tolerance had got so high but looking back on it you know I had no concept I never thought for a second what what's this doing to my health until it actually did it. Um, I'd love to hear you two perhaps talk around gender and drinking and how um, the fact that you know people drink for different reasons obviously but um, you know there's pointed marketing um for for women and men that are different based on social stereotypes and why people might want to drink but then that kind of pushes you further into drinking because you're identifying with these images that you see i saw a comparison which was uh, they compared it to big tobacco that tobacco was originally this very masculine thing and then men started getting diagnosed with lung cancer. So they brought, uh, they network, they advertised, that's what I'm looking for. They advertised it to women. And then women lung cancer caught up. Um, the margin between male and female drinkers used to be very large. And especially in the younger generation, that margin is very, very, very slim now. Uh, which is, uh, I feel that like every, every avenue of, you know, all of these uh, ideas we have for like what a woman should be, the advertising uh, bolsters up, like there is a drinking uh, uh, accompaniment to that. You know, there's the girls night out, like free young women, like this, you know, the sexy little cocktails, low calories. So, you know, you, you don't like gain any weight, you know, because that's all women care about, obviously. Um, and then there's the, it's like, this is really prevalent in America, like the mommy wine culture. Like, oh, like, here's mummy's juice and it's like a bottle of wine. So uh, it's kind of like every avenue you go down, uh, the alcohol industry has found a way to get their men, that get the idea that drinking is sexy and necessary um, for women. And there's an amazing book uh, that I read as I was getting, uh, you know, in my early sobriety called Drink by uh, Anne Johnson. And it's about a woman's relationship with alcohol. And she has this amazing quote um, in the introduction where she talks about uh, women women's rights advancing and then alcohol realizing that like as they try and get uh, equality with men they can uh, put their message on them uh, and she said that alcohol uh, is alcohol the steroid enabling women to do the heavy lifting in an endlessly complex world or is it an escape valve for women still in the midst of a major social revolution and that was the first thing I read that I was just like wow like this I'm being played here. Yeah, yeah. I think, and that shows how how clever and nuanced the kind of marketing is. That um, I was at a conference recently about um, alcohol marketing and uh, by the Institute of Alcohol Studies. And actually, yeah, it's it really hard to actually think about. Well, how does alcohol marketing actually influence me or influence the way I think about alcohol? But it, it's very subtle, and it does really tie into all those kind of identities and. Um, you know the kind of things that people associate with alcohol in terms of how they see it as kind of you know just kind of a part of who they are and their lifestyle and all the positive things associated with that um, but the really interesting thing is that you know there's the marketing regulation um, you know it's quite a lot of kind of uh, requirements for the, the kind of codes that the alcohol industry self-regulates itself on and there's a lot of criticism about uh, the extent to which they self-regulate themselves across kind of all forms of advertising. Um, but, you know, they say they don't appeal to children um, and, you know, it can't promote success, sex, sexual success and all these kind of things. But these are such grey areas, you know, it's so hard to actually uh, define. I mean, a while ago I made a complaint um, because uh, one of the things they, sh they shouldn't do, according to the code, is promote excess or, or you know, uh, immoderate consumption or however they define it. 
and it was a radio advert that said uh, something like, because um, a beer goes with everything. Uh, and I was, you know, for me, that was just my, oh, they're trying to say it goes well with your cornflakes. Yeah. And, um, um, and when I complained and they, you know, the answer was basically no, because people would see it within the context that it was meant. So, yeah, marketing is really subtle. It's really pervasive and it really kind of drives these kind of subconscious ideas that, that kind of, I think, reinforce the idea of alcohol as all positive and all good. And, you know, I'm not saying that alcohol doesn't have positives and it doesn't have good sides to it. But I think the kind of marketing is part of uh, the, one of the forces that's got us in a cultural position where it's so normalised and so culturally endorsed that the, the whole the whole dark kind of downside of alcohol is kind of kind of whitewashed to a degree mm. in the general mindset. I was thinking as you said that like not marketed to children and like I'm thinking of every alcohol advert I saw as a child and every one I saw I was like that looks fantastic <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait. yeah and of course as a child you, want, you aspire yeah. to be more adult exactly more adult thing to do is there than to drink like well. alcohol pops with the bright colors it's it's very interesting as well as you mentioned um self-regulation how does that work how does um the alcohol industry how can they self-regulate like how do we live in a world where well, we allow that <laughs> yeah exactly Turkey's exactly Turkey's voting for christmas <laughs> yeah. yeah so um I, we've spoken a lot about the effects that alcohol has on society um i just kind of wanted to hear your perspective on what place you think alcohol does have in society because obviously it isn't something that we need to survive or to get by in life but yeah, it does have such a, a, a position in our society. So moving forward, what do you think, how do you think we should still have that relationship? Or whether we should as well. Yeah, it's kind of a million dollar question, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I'm fascinated by people that, that can regulate their drinking. I, I, uh, one of my roommates, she... Uh, you know, she's the type of person that can leave half a glass of wine with her dinner and just be like, oh, I'm not going to finish that because I'm fine. And obviously I'm wired completely differently than she is. So I'm just like, how? Like, I don't understand it. So, uh, it you know, it takes it, it takes some definite, like me putting myself in other people's shoes. Uh, and, you know, I've obviously been from Scotland, massive whiskey culture, massive gin culture. Um, I know people that uh, are genuinely fascinated by the cultural and uh, culinary aspects of that and, and how important that is. And I, I, th I think for me, I just need to, you know, uh, that's why, why I keep the community that I have of, of people that, that can't drink normally, because I need to remember there are people in the world that can drink normally. Uh, I, I, I will never be like them, but they, but they do exist and they're, and they're out there. And, and Adrian Charles is a really interesting example of that because he did a documentary last year called drinkers like me and you know this this was him you know kind of re realizing he was saying he was drinking like 80 units a week which which is a lot you know it's like eight bottles of wine or whatever um and you know throughout the documentary met, met different people with different experiences and his kind of conclusion was yeah he's kind of cut down a lot and he's done some really good work since but in in that i think uh, i'm right in saying that he said that alcohol is the only drug that you have to apologize for not taking and that really <laughs> shows its kind of cultural yeah. normified position mm. so I, I mean i kind of think all drugs with all drugs from a kind of policy perspective it's a balance of regulation so we kind of know from america that prohibition doesn't work it's it's too <laughs> restrictive and it drives an underground market and i think alcohol even though the kind of tide has turned a bit and we're kind of facing the right direction to some degree, um, it's, it's kind of the opposite example and it's under-regulated, that it's freely promoted and advertised and self-regulated, etc. So there's kind of got to be some kind of better middle ground for, for alcohol, which isn't prohibition and it isn't this kind of totally culturally endorsed thing. And I think we are working towards getting it a bit back in the middle, I think the, probably a good measure of that is where people don't feel stigmatised or peer pressure to not drink or to drink only one. You know, when I'm at the golf club and I say I'm only having one or two, I still get a lot of uh, kind of stick for that. Um, uh, and golf, being a golfer, stigmatised as well. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's, that's true. Um, yeah, it's kind of like if you are, you know, regulating yourself uh, or saying like, 
that you don't want to drink or just want to want to have a few like people put all there's all sorts of judgments slurred onto that uh, related to you know how hard you are like you know uh, I'm sure this is a worldwide thing but like it's got it's always like you always want to be the hardest like you want to be the hard person uh and, and as a woman you've got to overcompensate as well so like that that was a big thing for me and like uh I, I can imagine like uh with men like it's it's a commentary on like your masculinity and everything so uh it's it's I think that that's definitely something that has to change like and I, I don't know how but it's, yeah. uh, it's so it's interesting not gonna happen to overnight but yeah hopefully we can yeah I mean by these kind of conversations and um yeah just kind of talking in a more nuanced way and understanding different perspectives and yeah kind of I mean I think we do need stronger regulation we do need more leadership from government I mean interestingly in Scotland they they're kind of you know being praised for their really strong approach to to alcohol regulation they've introduced the kind of floor price minimum price of 50 pence mm -hmm. a unit and there's good evidence or some emerging evidence already that's starting to help but that's only ever going to be a small part of it that that kind yeah. of drives the change in culture it's it's you know i was um I, I can't remember where i saw the statistic i think it was a bbc website but like i think it's scotland has like a 54 percent a uh, higher chance uh, of an alcohol-related death than anywhere else in the UK, which is, uh, which again goes back to like this is this is a public health crisis. Uh, it's not saying there's 54% more alcoholics in Scotland, there's 54% more addicts. It's like no, this is just alcohol as, as it is. And uh, the first when I heard about the uh, the baseline pricing, uh, my my first instinct, you know, as, as someone who identifies as an alcoholic, I was like, oh well, that that's ridiculous because like. Uh, you know, it, it, alcoholics will sacrifice anything before they sacrifice their drink. Like this is going to impact like low-income families, blah blah blah. And while that still may be true, alcohol doesn't just affect alcoholics and addicts. Like it's uh, binge drinkers and problem drinkers, and and all of that. And I can definitely see that on a societal level being being helpful. And uh, as you say, like the evidence is is emerging. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. What I would love to see more of on a societal level is just as simple as having more access and options when you want to go out and have a drink with your friend and not have to just order an orange juice every time um this is this was actually the kind of inspiration for this episode because um we went to a club night in uh the chateau in in clapham and it was actually one of the nights that tribe put on called reggaeton and that was the f actually the first time where it was like kind of a small sweaty club situation there wasn't like that many drinks on offer um i, I mean alcoholic drinks um, and yeah, on the bar, there was a very big, interesting list of non-alcoholic drinks. And there was many people around me who said, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I don't drink, so I'm going to get this, I'm going to get that. And I just thought that was so refreshing. And then my second thought was like, why is that so refreshing? Why isn't this the norm everywhere? Because then I can go to, you know, go to a club night and my friend can have also enjoy like a refreshing, tasty drink from, you know, a culinary point of view. It's like people who want to like... I don't know, I don't want to kind of, you know, talk about, uh, you know, vegan alternatives that pretend to be me, but it's like, just make interesting vegetarian food. Mm. Yeah. Or, you know, whatnot. Yes. So um, that's definitely something. And I, and I, and I, I guess there is a rise in that, like alcohol uh, alternative drinks yeah, and uh, mm -hmm. menus. Yeah, I mean, the uh, market has been kind of exploding and... And I think that is consumer driven. I once heard someone say that, you know, Toyota didn't invent the Prius because they wanted to save the environment. They invented it because there was consumer demand mm. for it. And I think the same things happened with kind of non-alcoholic drinks. Um, I mean, uh, it was interesting. I was hearing someone the other day saying about how Heineken have invested huge amounts in marketing Heineken Zero, mm. the kind of alcohol free one. Um, but you know, kind of rather cynically, they were saying, well, people still just see the Heineken advertising, they don't really see the zero. <laughs> um, and, and the other interesting thing I've heard is that uh, recently that kind of 9%, only 9% of people who regularly consume those alcohol-free drinks are actually teetotal. So they're obviously appealing as well to a lot of people who just want to cut down their drinking and it helps <laughs> them do that. And I'm one of those people, you know, I don't really drink in the week. Um but uh, sometimes, you know, if I'm having a, a curry or something, I do fancy a beer with it and I'll have an alcohol-free beer and it kind of does the job. 
Yeah, like I, I think there's like there's kind of an inclusivity uh, thing there. I remember my first year of sobriety. I'm coming up two years in March, and I would only drink still plain water because I felt like it was my penance for being <laughs> such a dirty like alcoholic. Like, like you know, so I was like, yeah, still water now and forever. And uh, in my second year, I was just like, wait a second, like I, even if it's like a, a sparkly water with a wee spot of blueberry, like. I deserve that too. Like, I don't deserve to be like sitting there with like my dusty glass in the corner and everyone's like drinking their martinis. Like, and I so like feeling, um, it is, it's, oh my God, even just hearing you say like the curry was the beer, like that's a all over like experience and uh, having, having options there is, is so good. Um, talking about language, just because we've spoken about the stigma related to alcohol addiction and uh, obviously like labeling sometimes people with, you know, these identities, you're an alcoholic or you're in recovery or et cetera, et cetera, can feel quite profound. So it'd be quite interesting to hear from you both, like, how do you speak, how have you spoken about your alcohol addiction? Um, like, what labels do you like to use or, or maybe which ones you like to steer away from? Yeah, it's when people don't identify with alcoholic, kind of, uh, what do they identify with and what are the reasons behind them not identifying with that? One of my favourite uh, kind of academic papers is is something called, um, there's a paper called Reconstructing the Alcoholic Identity. Um, and it's really about kind of how people who have identified with being an alcoholic uh, kind of generate this, this new self-identity. And that's, you know, like, because drinking tends to be such a big part of our identities, um, I, you know, it really was for me when I was young binge drinker. That was really how I saw myself and why I probably was so blind to all the stupid things and the harms that it was doing. And going through that, that those kind of processes have also involved identity transition, transitions, changing the way I see myself and how I think others see me. Um, but in that paper, what I found so fascinating was the way that people talked about how they knew that ad admitting, I think is in the, in the words of AA, to being an alcoholic they knew that it was such a stigmatizing thing but they they kind of uh responded to that by embracing it by saying well despite the stigma and i know everyone's going to kind of have this judgment and labeling approach to me and maybe discriminate against me i'm still going to kind of proudly adopt it because that's kind of strength and commitment to my recovery um so i think yeah i think the stigma is such an important conversation and thinking about how we can break down the stigma because you know it's so amazing when people do just come out and say that but we have to also recognize that that does put a lot of that is so scary to a lot of people and i felt really difficult when i did used to say it when i went to AA for a bit um yeah, so I think there's pros and cons to it, and I think we have to have a really open, honest conversation about it. I'd love to hear Lauren's kind of views on that. Yeah, completely. So, uh, I the the high bar in my head for what an alcoholic was when I was younger and when I started drinking, like I had, like th there was only one person in my community that people were like, oh, he's the alky. Um, and it was, you know, the I think the image that we all immediately get, there's someone that's dishevelled, all the things we talked about earlier, like what you lose. Um, admitting that I was an alcoholic meant that there was a way that I could get help. Like I didn't have to live in this nebulous world of, but can I drink normally again? But can I do this? Like, would this work for me? And can I keep hiding it from everyone? So um you know, I, I, of, I often will uh, identify as an addict as well, because then that's a way to like look at behaviours and addictive behaviours and like really work on it. So saying that I'm an alcoholic or an addict is not me looking back at my past. It's me saying like, here's how I'm going to go forward so that this disease does not take me down again. And so a question I usually get on my Instagram is... Uh, why why is your life just all sobriety like is that all you do is, is all you do like talk about sobriety and blah 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 um and obviously that's all what I talk about in my account but like that couldn't be further from the truth like I I have an enormous life now with so much so many things in it and so it's so much going on and that would not be possible without my sobriety uh because uh, when I was drinking my life was very small and it took for me to say I am an alcoholic. I can't drink like other people. For me to to actually fix it, I think the problem is um, that you know it's it's totally part of human nature to try and categorise uh, things and to simplify things. Um, you know that uh, 
you know, our lives would be far too complicated if we looked at everything in its entirety and uh, did, weren't able to kind of put labels and distill things down. But some things are just too complex for kind of single labels. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I really don't mean this as criticism of, of, of AA in the sense that it's helped so many, many people, saved so many lives. But I do fundamentally believe that alcoholism... Uh, you know, it's kind of more of a meta- more of metaphorical thing and that's kind of how it was intended, um, you know, a kind of spiritual thing rather than a kind of literal physical entity in a sense. Um, and, of course, that helps so many people. But the problem of alcohol or addiction or mental health problems, these things are so nuanced and complicated that it's almost always going to be, in my view, counterproductive to try and distill them down too much. Mm. And that's why the conversations and and everything um, is are so important uh, because we always have to be a bit aware that trying to oversimplify these things uh, can be problematic. Um, there's a brilliant quote by H.L. Mencken that says, for every complex uh, problem, there's a solution that is complete, uh, simple, clear and wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of... Kind of, kind of my view that 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 yeah that there's degrees of severity and different experiences um, and every single person is so different and their experience is so different. Uh, many people believe that like once you stop drinking, your life will become easy. Myself included. It's the drinking that's the problem. But uh, you know what you, what you mentioned about like mental health and. Uh, everything that even in just the past 20 years we've got so much more information on and like public information um, about the the effects that trauma has and the effects that um, society is having on people uh, you know we wouldn't be talking about that so freely and openly about 30 years ago so I think that is changing the conversation so much about how we treat alcohol and why we drink um, and it's it's been such a long journey for me to realize uh like oh these things weren't results of my hangovers this was results as you know the depression I've experienced since I was 13 um and that's you know it, it you know as, as I said like it took me for like you know to, to admit that I'm an alcoholic and blah, blah 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 to get there but other people who do not identify under that label uh will also experience that as they get sober I think that uh, I've had so many mixed feelings about the the sober curious movement yeah um i for you know my my ego was like oh i almost died over this like how dare you make it cute and funny and accessible to people my Um, recovered self was like oh you know everyone deserves to be uh happy joyous and free in their own way and if that is experimenting with sobriety then that is that is kind of beautiful for them that's kind that's kind of a gorgeous thing that no one should begrudge them experiencing i think it really nicely fits back to what you were saying james about the need to almost package things because yet again like i almost had similar feelings when i found out about sober curiousness you know it's almost like this word you create so there's like a trend or something you can research but um because so being sober curious is just choosing not to have an alcoholic drink you know what I mean? That's always existed, but there's this rise and there's a name need to like label it as a movement or Branding, something that we yeah. started, um, which is super interesting. But also at the same time, I can totally relate to what you're saying, Lauren, in that for someone who is working really hard to be sober, um, it kind of is maybe it's belittling to what you're doing. Right. Yeah. I think that what, <laughs> how, how I came around to it, it was like someone else's journey and someone doesn't reflect on mine. And if anyone is trying to make that healthier for them, however they choose, I think that is an amazing way to go forward.
All right. So that was Tatiana's letter scene, um, sung by Laura McQuiston. Um, you've just heard her in an interview, and I don't know if you already know, she's an opera singer as well. The work is um, from Eugene Onegan, and this was composed by Tchaikovsky. Thank you to Lauren and James for being our amazing guests and giving their perspectives and sharing their story with us. To keep up to date with Lauren and James, remember to follow Brutal Recovery on Instagram and for Lauren's amazing singing work and writing, her website is laurenmcquiston.com. For James's writing and work within alcohol addiction, his website is jamesmorris24.com. And for people who want to go out and find out more information about alcohol, maybe um, maybe you're struggling with drinking or you just want to know a bit more about the science or the social um, impact, etc. Um, there's a really fantastic place you can go, which is called Alcohol Change, um, previously known as Alcohol Research UK. The, the web address is alcoholchange.org.uk. Um, there's loads of fact sheets, information about, you know, uh, alcohol and sports, etc. Um, so, yeah, it's a good place to go and have a look if you want to find out more. Um, and there is Drinkline, um, number for which is 0300 and actually also um James who you who you heard from this episode um he's available for one to one support so you can um find a way to contact him via his website just to mention as well the sort of sober curious movement has definitely been pushed by instagram and sort of people using their own platforms to sort of challenge the dominant drinking culture this has come from people who have um had to reassess drinking problems within themselves as well um people like Africa Brooks, uh, Millie Grouch, Ruby Warrington, of course, who set up the Sober Curious podcast, Sad Girls Club, DJ Paulette. Um, there are loads of people who have been behind this movement, which has called for like safer social spaces, which don't centralise drinking to them. And actually, through doing some research into this, I also found out about a place called Sober is Fun, which is... Um, actually a comedy club which was set up by a man called Martin he was an alcohol recovering alcoholic and he's a comedian who's worked in entertainment for many many years but actually had to separate himself from his work because he realized it wasn't very beneficial to to his recovery really mm. um so I think like a year or two after he had actually become sober, he set up Sober as Fun just because he wanted a space to be able to to, to work and also, no, he wanted a space to be able yeah. to to do perform, comedy yeah. and perform and et cetera. Um, that wouldn't be detrimental to it. And, he, and it, he obviously had like, as a comedian himself, he had all these great contacts at the Apollo, et cetera, et cetera. So wrote to loads of his friends into doing like the first one um, as a way of almost giving back to his community of, you know, also recovering that alcoholics cool. That's so cool. um, and people who he met at AA. And yeah, I think what he told me was quite surprising was that from the first one, he noticed that the audience, he sold out number one, Sick. but she said he didn't expect to do, but the audience was also quite mixed. And so mm. it wasn't uh, just people from, you know, his own, the sort of like recovery community. It was also just people who just yeah. wanted to go out and also, not have a drink yeah exactly i bet also that it wasn't all just people who are like who are like sober or like teetotal people it's probably like people probably went because they were like oh i want to go see some comedy and i don't really feel like drinking yeah um and so that's quite interesting because i think that is to me the key of all of this that it's why why are we talking about like not drinking being such a categorical like big deal yeah, yeah. Like, it shouldn't yeah. be a big deal yeah why is that the default yeah yeah, yeah. And I think also there is something about like that high that you not that high, but the sort of energy that sometimes alcohol can get can give you. Mm. And he was talking about like laughter being such a strong replacement for that. Oh, um, and so beautiful. actually, like a lot you coming into a space like that, you realize how like you don't need. Mm. The, I don't know. Yeah, that's that was quite an interesting comment that he made. Cool. Yeah. Nice. This last song is by Jerome Thomas, and it's called Lovesick. He's a London-based singer-songwriter, 
And I feel like he perfectly articulates and captures that moment of having a crush on someone and feeling very intense. The busy drums, the layered vocals and uh, the lyrics that all intertwine to really make you relate to that feeling. Some news about Third. So we launched our first range of limited edition tees and hoodies, which went down really well. To keep posted about our next drop, please make sure to follow us on Instagram. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Third Waves. Remember to stay tuned online at Third Magazine on Instagram. That's Third with three eyes. I am Rona. I'm Daniela. And I'm Tribe.